If you and I are Peter, and we need Jesus, a true and faithful witness, to stand in our place on our behalf and to say, I'm willing to be cast out, to be condemned, to be nailed to a cross for you in your place. Hello, and thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. My name is Pilgrim Benham, and I'm the lead pastor of Shoreline Church. And today on the podcast, we will be studying John chapter 18, verses 15 through 27. We're going to be studying the trials of Jesus before he went to the cross. Grab your Bible, open up to John 18, and I hope you enjoy this message. I want to start today with a quote, an anonymous quote. It's a pastor who... Um, says this, uh, a little bit about this section of scripture. Here's what he says. He says, it's a question. Have you ever attempted to do something for God that you thought was really commendable only to have your efforts miserably fail? You don't need to raise your hand on that. Just to miserably fail. How often Christians look at a situation, he says, and think that God is in trouble and that he desperately needs our help. Have you ever been in that situation? Uh, And when we are in such crisis situations, he says, we are tempted to act in a way that is inconsistent with God's will and his word. And so we act impulsively, presuming that God will bless, that he must bless. And when he doesn't do that, when he allows us to fall flat on our faces, we are, well, we're angry and we're hurt. And this is the time, he says, when we're tempted to give it all up and to deny him. Let us beware of assuming that we know better than God how he should work in a given situation, right? Let us beware of assuming that God is obliged to bless our efforts, no matter how heroic they appear, when our efforts are contrary to his plan. Wow, that's where we're going today in our text. If that applies to you, it absolutely applies to me. And so with that as an opening thought, we are going to jump into our text today. Now, we left off last week in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus, remember, was bound and was taken to Annas and Caiaphas' home, the, the high priest, the former high priest and the current high priest. And he's about to be put on trial. If you remember, we saw the 11 disciples scatter, uh, and now Jesus is merely one legal charge away from being condemned to death. And so when you compile the four gospel records of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is what we're doing in this series, The Road to the Cross. We're taking a a glimpse of all four of the gospels and putting them together. And when you do that, you see that Jesus actually faced not one, not two, but six uh, different uh, trials or hearings. Um, We'll put them on the screen. The first three were before the Jews or Jewish uh, officials. Uh, religious trials before Annas, which we'll see today, Caiaphas, which it's hinted at today, and then before the Sanhedrin. Um, But then Jesus in the morning is sent to Pilate, who pushes him off to Herod, who pushes him back to Pilate. And so we'll see the first three today, and we'll see the the second three next Sunday, okay? Um, And so what we're going to read this morning uh, takes place on Friday morning, of, of Easter week or Passion Week or Holy Week it takes place Friday morning from about uh, midnight Friday morning into about 3 or 4 a.m. That's what we're going to be looking at today. So in the middle of the night. And if you weren't here last week, we're basically doing a larger section of Scripture reading. Okay? Usually we read a passage of Scripture and then we teach that exact passage. What we're going to do today uh, in this series is we're going to read all of Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts and then we'll study John's to see some of the distinctions, all right? So uh, what we'll find is that these passages complement, not contradict each other. So uh, if you're not used to having a longer section of Scripture reading, then you're in luck. Today is the day um, in this series we're going to be doing it. So please turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to start around verse 57. Matthew 26, starting in verse 57. I'm in Matthew 27. That doesn't make sense. Here we go. Matthew 26, 57. It says, Then those who had seized Jesus, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. 
And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Verse 69 says, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Uh, let's turn to Mark's gospel, if you would. Mark chapter 14. So turn there or swipe there. Mark chapter 14. We'll be in verse 53. Mark 14, 53. Again, from the English standard. Mark 14, 53 says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witnesses against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Verse 66 says, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. Huh. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Wow. Let's turn to Luke's gospel. If you would turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. Starting in verse 54. 
Luke 22:54 says, Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Verse 63, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. And then Luke adds this detail in verse 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Now, let's turn to John chapter 18. And what we're going to do as we turn to John 18 is we're going to study this passage together. We won't read all of it ahead of time. We'll, we'll read it and then make uh, comments. And what we're going to see is two different scenes. As you've just read, all the gospel writers set up these exact two different scenes at the exact same time happening consistently, consecutively. You've got in one scene, Peter, who's denying the Lord three times. And then you have Jesus, who is standing before the Jewish council, uh, and he uh, is ultimately being put on trial, so to speak. And so we're going to see this back and forth story, even in John's gospel, beginning, look at verse 15. We'll read verses 15 and 16. It says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Okay, so if you're following along, Peter has been following Jesus into the courtyard of Annas' home, okay? Um, now, this is really interesting. I think we have on the screen a picture of Caiaphas's home. So um, the high priest's home, this is Caiaphas's home, uh, was very similar to Annas. Annas's home was the largest home in, in Jerusalem, 6,500 square feet, palatial. And, they, and, and uh, we don't have pictures of it, but in Annas' home, very similar to Caiaphas' home, there was kind of a grand courtyard. And the courtyard connected all of the rooms, and they'd have these fires with logs set up where you could go in and warm yourself by the fire. What's interesting about Annas' home, though, is that when you first walked in, you were uphill. The home was built on a, a hill, on a slope. And so when you first walked through the doors, you were upstairs in the main kind of uh, main main gathering area, and that's the room Jesus would have been in. Well, they had these pillars and these kind of um, little arches and, and ways that you could see in between these arches, and it led down. That's why it says, I think in Luke's gospel, that uh, Peter went down. He went down to the courtyard to warm himself, and as he goes to escape and leave, he would have walked back up, and there would have been a vantage point between one of these arches where Jesus would have had an eyesight, one exact spot in particular in Annas' home, where he would have had a direct eye shot of Peter. And so uh, we understand here that Peter is following Jesus in. But John, notice that John points out that there was another disciple with him. Now, a lot of people have been speculating who was this, which disciple was it. Most scholars agree that it was John himself, John the gospel writer who's writing this. He didn't want to give himself credit like, hey guys, uh, we're going to trash Peter again because all three gospel writers show this story. So let me add my uh, take on it. And I was there and I didn't, I didn't deny Jesus. Sorry. So he doesn't say his own name. Uh, he didn't say the disciple whom Jesus loved right here, this guy. He doesn't do that. And so he's a little more anonymous. Uh, but what's interesting is that um, <clears throat> he says that 
He was known to the high priest. Perhaps uh, John's relationship with his father Zebedee, maybe there was a connection there uh, with fish to the high priest. We don't know exactly. We're speculating. But nonetheless, both of them are there. And so as they walk into Annas' home, what John's pointing out is that the servant girl at the door may have later walked up, but she's the one who identifies Peter. And so look at verse 17. Uh, She says, uh, the servant girl said at the door to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Remember, Jesus had predicted that Peter would deny him three times. Mark points out that the rooster would crow twice. So before the rooster crows two times, this denial is gonna happen. And here's the first denial, verse 17. Notice with me, guys, it's a quick response to a harmless girl. She would have known that John was one of Jesus' disciples, but she didn't seem to, John didn't seem threatened by that that fact that she knew that. And perhaps that's why she said, you also are not. In other words, like, not another one. Are you also? Uh, And Peter could have said, actually, yes. Yes, I am one of his. You can see this other disciple, John, and I too am a disciple, yes. I vowed earlier tonight that even if everyone were to fall away, I would not fall away. And so, yes, I am absolutely, certainly one of Jesus's disciples. I'm proud to associate with Jesus. I'm the most devout, courageous follower in the house, and I'm right here. Bring it, right? He could have done that. Uh, He could have just mumbled to her, like, no comprende, right? He could have said that, like, I don't understand what you mean, right? He could have just ignored her just kind of walked by her and like looked at her. But no, Peter's quick to deny. No, 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 I don't know who, what you're talking about. I'm not. Even privately to a young servant girl, harmless. Well, look what John points out, verse 18. It says, now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The cold spring evenings in Israel would necessitate a small fire to keep your hands warm nearby. And notice with me that in verse 18, there are two groups of people. There's servants of the high priest, and there's also officers. Remember, these are the officers, remember the hundreds who had shown up in what we studied last week just a few hours prior in the garden. They had come armed with lanterns, with torches to capture Jesus, to arrest Jesus. And so these are some of them, the same men who had been there earlier in the garden. Uh, And so uh, Malchus, the high priest servant, remember we studied in John, all the gospel writers include this, but then John points out it was Peter who cut off the the high priest servant's ear. And John also points out it was Malchus. We needed to know that fact. So it was Malchus. Uh, And no doubt Malchus is somewhere here on the property. He served the high priest. So maybe he's in the corner going, is it on straight, guys? I mean, what happened? Is it looking good? How's my ear? Uh, we, we don't know what's happening. But at this point, Mark's gospel, remember we just read it? At this point, Mark's gospel tells us that a rooster crowed. It's going to crow again. Why were there two rooster crows? You see, the first rooster crow was a warning to Peter after his first denial. Uh, it was almost, in effect, the Lord saying, hey, you're going to deny me two more times. And so they're coming. And there's going to be a second, uh, there's going to be a second rooster or second crowing. But not before God gives Peter a providential and gracious warning. Folks, listen. God is, in his grace, one who will warn us often before we head down a path of destruction. I'm so encouraged when I read that, that, that God gives us warnings before we face failure. He gives us the opportunity of escape. In fact, Paul would tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, you can jot this verse down. He says, uh, basically, if you think that you're standing firm, take heed lest you fall. No temptation uh, has overtaken you that's not common to man, but God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You see, church, God in his faithfulness will always provide a way of escape when we are tempted so that we can endure temptation. Remember, Jesus uh, had told Peter earlier, I'm praying for you, Peter. Satan wants to sift you as wheat, and I'm praying that your faith will not fail. Uh, And he had told him, before the rooster crows twice, you 
will deny me. And so this first rooster crow was Peter's way of escape. God is faithful, church. He's faithful to give us a warning, a way of escape. Think of uh, the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira. They both had an opportunity to confess and repent uh, before lying to the Holy Spirit. They had that opportunity. Uh, King David, as he lusted after Bathsheba on the rooftop, when he inquired, who is that? And they said, oh, that's the wife of, of Uriah the Hittite, one of your men, right? Then that was King David's way of escape. He should have said, oh, well, I love that guy. Thank you for letting me know. I shouldn't have gone that far. I appreciate you telling me. That was his way of escape, but he pushed beyond it. And I think of the various ways that God has provided a way of escape for all of us when we endure temptation. And in my life, almost 100% of the time, it's by quoting scripture. How do, how do you overcome being tempted? How? By quoting scripture. How did Jesus overcome temptation in the garden? By quoting scripture. Peter, in this moment, should have said, man, I should have remembered what the Lord said. I know he spoke to me. He gave me a clear word, and that's the word I should hang on to, and he didn't. Uh, just think about this. If you're tempted in these various areas, I've got a verse for you. Okay, there's a verse for that. Um, we should make that a hashtag. There's a verse for that. I mean, honestly, there is a verse for that. Psalm 199. If you're struggling... With, with temptation. You need to hide the word in your heart. Psalm 199 says, how can a young man, how can an old man, how can a young woman, how can an old woman keep their way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Psalm 119.11, just two verses later, tells us, I've stored up your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. Uh, guys, temptation is a part of being a Christian. Uh, but we must, like Jesus, store the word in our heart so that when we do face temptation, we can endure it without sinning. How did Jesus escape Satan's temptation? How? By quoting the scriptures. He said, it is written. So some of us are tempted with various things. Do we have verses in our arsenal that we can quote when tempted? Let me just give you a few. If you're being tempted sexually, I've got a verse for you. There's a verse for that. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 says, flee from sexual immorality. Men, that's four words. You can quote four words when you're being tempted to look at pornography. Flee from sexual immorality. Turn off the device and run. Flee from it. Uh, maybe that verse doesn't help you. Here's a longer one, Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That, by the way, was instrumental in the life of Augustine. That verse radically transformed uh, that great man of God. Uh, maybe you're not being tempted with that. Maybe you're tempted with anxiety. I have a verse for you. Philippians 4, 6 says, do not be anxious about anything. What's the word? Anything. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Okay, so if you're anxious, have that in your arsenal. Memorize that, quote it. Are you being tempted to slander someone or gossip? Well, talk about them behind their back. Here's a verse for you. There's a verse for that. Ephesians 4. Uh, it says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And verse 31 says, let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Uh, maybe you're not tempted with any of those. Maybe you're tempted with cussing or crude jokes. You love to say the crude jokes. Well, there's a verse for you, Ephesians 5.4. It says, let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. We could go, let's just keep going. We can do this for the rest of the day. No, but what ends up happening is we can endure temptation because we have that arsenal, like Jesus. We're, we're being overcome. We go, well, I have that verse. What's that verse again? And that's the importance, guys, of memorizing Scripture. Peter had the word from the Lord. He had that first rooster crow, and he didn't listen. Now, we leave this scene, and then we cut to the room. If I were a, 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 a filmographer, whatever, a videographer, if I was making a film, I would say, okay, now we're going to cut to the other scene, right, to now where Jesus is with Annas, the, the unofficial high priest, okay? And so look at verse 19. Now, again, he's the, the previous high priest. Caiaphas is the now acting high priest, but they still said high priest. So this would be kind of like saying President Obama, President Bush, Right? Uh, we use those terms even though they're not currently the president. It's a title that they retain even out of office. So INS would still be called high priest even though he wasn't currently the acting high priest. So look at verse 19. It says, the high priest, this is Annas, then questioned Jesus about his disciples, first 
and then secondly, his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Two things the high priest wanted to know about. Notice, Jesus' disciples and Jesus' doctrine. Did you notice what Jesus didn't bring up? Jesus didn't bring up his disciples at all. He didn't say, well, let me tell you. And he's not even going to go there. He's, again, protecting his followers. And so he immediately says about his teaching, and he says, everything I taught was consistent, and it was public. I didn't say one thing in public in, in, a, in, a, in a gathering, in a teaching, and then take my disciples aside and say, yeah, that was, that was hogwash. Here's what I really believe. No, he was consistent in what he taught uh, and what he affirmed. One person said this about truth. Truth is bold and barefaced, whereas heresy hides itself and loathes the light. Uh, we don't have to, listen, this is not what we do. We don't say, all right, Sunday morning we're going to give you like a, a teaching light, L-I-T-E, but then we'll give you the deep stuff later. No, we want you to be equipped for every good work. and We believe scripture gives you that ability. Uh, so what happens in false groups or, or in cults is they'll, they'll give you enough to kind of make you think that they're Christian, right? But then when you get behind the scenes, they go a little bit, uh, a little bit deeper, right? Like the Gnostics. And it's really not deeper. It's deeper into sin and heresy. Uh, but here Jesus has nothing to hide. And thus he says in verse 21, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. What Jesus is saying here is, hey, this is illegal. What you're doing here in this trial is a mockery of justice. You see, guys, there had to be witnesses at this trial, true witnesses for this to even proceed. And the fact that this is taking place demonstrates that Jesus is having really a sham of a trial. But this isn't the only illegal thing that happens. Maybe you winced when we read it earlier. Look at verse 22. It says, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. We don't have the details, but it would have carried on the same. But notice with me in verse 22 that one of these officers strikes Jesus with his hand. This is kind of a foreshadowing of the brutal and unjust suffering Jesus is about to endure. And we'll get into that more next week, eventually leading to his death on the cross. See, they can't condemn Jesus with a legitimate testimony, so they resort to violence. Now, we don't have this account in John's gospel, but because this politician, Annas, cannot entrap Jesus. He then sends him across the courtyard uh, or across uh, town, so to speak, to the recognized high priest, Caiaphas. And at this point, they bring in the false witnesses. They can't say anything honest about Jesus. And so then they bring in witnesses who say, oh, we've heard him say that if you tear down the temple, he'll rebuild it with, without hands. Now, obviously, he's not speaking about the actual temple. He's not speaking about brick and mortar. He's speaking about his body. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will build it again. It'll be built back up. It'll rise again. He's speaking about his own death, burial, and resurrection. They weren't understanding that. And so even their false witnesses, um, I think in Mark's gospel, it says they didn't add up. Um, they, they didn't uh, meet one another. Um, this, these, were, these were false, bad witnesses. But then they ask him directly, we adjure you to answer, are you the Christ? Jesus says, yes, essentially. Yes, I am, the, I am the Christ. I'm the son of the most high. And you'll see me on the clouds with power. Now that was, a, was actually, a, Jesus was guilty based on their standards. He was guilty in that moment of blasphemy. That's why they tore their robes. And that's why they said, do you need to hear any other witnesses? He said it himself. We've heard his own testimony. He's guilty of blasphemy. Now, as a religious leader in Jerusalem, I want you with me for a minute to think, how do you put someone to death in Israel if you're not the one who has the right uh, to produce capital punishment? You know what I'm saying? Like, like they have a thing in America called citizen's arrest, and it's kind of cute, right? Have you ever done that to your brother when you were growing up? Like, citizen's arrest, you lied to mom. <clears throat> one of those kind of things, no? I guess I was a mean brother, I did that. A lot. <clears throat> Citizen's arrest. Stay in your room. Mom's coming. Um, but, but what do you do in Israel? You, you, the right uh, to uh, 
produce capital offense. That, um, that was taken away by Rome. Rome was now the one who enacted that. And so um, the only way that you could do this is if the person committed some kind of capital offense against Rome. That was the only way that you could do this. But, but notice in the narratives that we just read, they could find no testimony sufficient to produce such a charge. They couldn't find that. They're like, find something. Jesus did something wrong, even with the false witnesses. Okay, so what happens here is the most unjust trial in human history. What we'll see next week is that they finally get him to Pilate and then who sends him to Herod because he's like, there's nothing, he didn't do anything wrong. This is just like a religious argument. I have nothing to, to make him be crucified for. I, I can't put this guy to death. I could beat him up, flog him, punish him, and that'll make the people happy, but I can't actually put him to death. And so this whole trial, as it's happening behind the scenes, was a, an absolute um, mistrial. It's, it's a joke. Um, I, I just want to give you a few reasons why. First of all, in the morning, when they brought Jesus before the Sanhedrin, let me put it on the screen. This is what the Sanhedrin was supposed to look like. There's supposed to be a group of 24 chief priests, 24 elders, 23 scribes, which equaled 71, and then the high priest residing over it. So 71 of the body of these men, and then one high priest to equal 72 altogether. That was supposed to be there. But what do we find? We find a handful of men. Um, here's what one person said. The Sanhedrin were the highest and ultimate ruling body in Israel. The men who were on that group were chosen because of their wisdom. They were chosen from the lesser councils. They did their apprenticeship work by serving a lesser council, and if they proved themselves to be uniquely wise, they were brought to the Sanhedrin level. So this is supposed to be the wisest body, kind of like our Supreme Court, right? This should be the men that you can trust. But essentially what happened is that three things did not happen. And I wanna put these on the screen. These three things were supposed to happen for Jesus' trial to be legit. So if you're taking notes, jot these down. Number one, there was supposed to be a public trial during the day and never during a feast. That's one, that's one thing. Okay? It was supposed to be public. It was supposed to happen during the day. This is private and at night, middle of the night. And it was never to happen during a feast. In fact, if you were given a capital offense or blasphemy, they would say, okay, we're not gonna, we're not gonna try you today. We're not gonna try you tomorrow. We'll try you on the third day. There's supposed to be three days from the day that the offense was brought to the trial. This is happening right now in the middle of the night, and it happened during a feast. Absolutely illegal. Secondly, there's supposed to be, number two, a right of defense. You were supposed to, like here in America, be given the right to someone defending you. Jesus is given a chance to defend himself, but no one is submitted to help defend him. Uh, he was guilty before uh, he was proven innocent. Now, thirdly, one more, there was supposed to be solid eyewitness evidence. God commanded all throughout the Old Testament, especially in Deuteronomy 19, that there was to be two, remember, two or three witnesses. Remember that? We're to, we're to establish it on two or three witnesses. Um, the crazy thing is <clears throat> that if you were a false witness and you were found out, you would receive the punishment that the person you were accusing deserved. So if you were a false witness and you said, yeah, that person did that, whatever their punishment was, you would get it. By being a, so you didn't want to be a false witness. Not only that, <clears throat> but the law was amazing. The witness had to be the first one to throw the stone. So if you were lying about it, now you had to be the one to throw the first stone. Now you're guilty of murder, right? Because it was uh, done to an innocent person. And so for that reason, they never admitted women or children uh, as witnesses or the disabled or handicapped. Now, none of those were at play in Jesus's trial. None of those were at play. And so after Anna sends Jesus to Caiaphas, he doesn't get anywhere. They send him to the Sanhedrin. They deliberate and they say, blasphemy is the charge. Now let's get him to Pilate. And so they send Jesus to this Roman ruler. And we'll see next week what happens when Jesus and Pilate meet. But for the remainder of our time today, the scene cuts again and we go back to Peter. Uh, where did we leave Peter? You remember, he was in front of the fire. So let's go to verse 25. It says, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? Here's denial number two. He denied it and said, I am not. I'm not. Now this is not a discrepancy here. The people who would have seen Peter walk in originally went to the fire. 
And so that's essentially uh, what's happening. They're all around the fire, and different ones are chiming in. The bystanders are asking. Uh, and I think it's interesting that Peter's warming himself by the same fire that was keeping the enemies of Jesus comfortable. Interesting. But here we have the second denial. I'm not one of his disciples. The other synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us right here that Peter makes an oath. Right? He, he seems to be good at making empty promises. Remember John 13, 37 on the screen? Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Empty oaths. For some reason, John here didn't seem to be in any immediate danger, though he's in the same complex as Peter. But now Peter's denied Jesus twice. And at this point in the other Gospels, they start pointing out uh, that uh, people are picking up on Peter's accent. I don't know if you picked up on that when we were reading it earlier. But they start going, wait, aren't you a Galilean? uh, Hey, I can tell from your accent. Um, He was Galilean, so he's kind of from the sticks, all right? So they would have picked up on this kind of country accent. They're like, we have cosmopolitan ears. This guy's speaking with a different accent. Uh, You're one of Jesus' followers, aren't you? Uh, and, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say that with the third denial, somewhere in that, there's the word certainly. They all say, certainly, you're one of his followers. And Peter should have said, yeah, you're certainly right. I certainly am. But see, John picks up on something no one else notices. Look at verse 26. Verse 26 says, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Okay, this is really bad. If you're tracking with me, Malchus, the high priest's servant, remember he lost an ear? You guys remember that? Nod your head if you remember he lost an ear. Who cut his ear off? You remember? Peter. Peter cut his ear off, okay? And so from Peter's own sword, right, This guy, Malchus, had at least one other relative who was in the garden, and he would have been one of the first guys probably to run up to his cousin or brother and say, oh, no, what happened? He would have turned around. He absolutely would have known, right, who Peter was. And so all of a sudden, he chimes in, hey, weren't weren't you in the garden? I think I remember, I remember a face. I don't know names, but I know faces, and I remember seeing you in the garden. Hey, do you still have the sword with you? Right, this is happening in this moment. And Luke tells us as... Peter denies him that Jesus looked directly across the property. At this point, Peter would have tried to escape. He's making his way back upstairs, back to the main courtyard, trying to get away. And there's this exact spot between all of the columns where there's a direct line of sight. Many people go to Annas' house in Israel, in Jerusalem, and they'll stand in that exact spot and have their picture taken, where you can see through all of the columns, and there would have been an eyesight site where um, Jesus would have looked directly at Peter. Can you imagine? Jesus looking at you as you denied him three times. Well, all of the accounts tell us that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now, if this were the end of Peter in the Bible, if this were it, would you be surprised? If if this were the end of Peter's account, I wouldn't be surprised. Man, what a colossal failure. But what I want to do is spend a few minutes in application together to to truly understand what was happening uh, in this text. Peter was a failure, but it didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen uh, in one second. It didn't happen on his third denial. Peter failed for a few reasons, but the overarching reason is that he placed his faith uh, in his own flesh. Peter put his strength and his hope in his own flesh. Notice that Peter's downfall didn't come at that moment, but much earlier. I want us to jot down a few of these as we make some application points. Number one, Peter failed by boasting in his power rather than in his weakness. He boasted in his power rather than in his weakness. Mark 14, 29 says that Peter said, even if all fall away, Lord, I won't fall away. In that moment, hey, hey, there's James. Yeah, there's John. There's What's his name again? Bartholomew. There's uh, Thomas. I won't, Lord. I'll never fall away from you. They may fall away, but remember who's the rock. I'm the rock, Lord. I got this. I'm going to stay in with you. Think of the arrogance. Peter was trusting in his own abilities. He says, I have the power to stay close to Christ. I'm I'm bold for Jesus. And yet, he's going to fold 
at the inquiry of a servant girl. And so often we, we act like Peter. We, we misplace our confidence uh, and we put it in our flesh. We say, oh, you know what, Lord, I'm not like that Christian over there. I, I mean, oh, you're struggling with that sin? Ooh, wow, that's, that's bad. I've never struggled with <clears throat> that particular temptation. <clears throat> you had to quote the verses on the screen? Well, I hope the Lord helps you with that. I, I'm doing good. I'm, aw- I'm awesome. I'm not awful like that person. I've never been tempted like that before. Well, Paul would tell the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10, when you measure yourself by yourself and compare yourself with yourselves, you're not wise. <clears throat> we always feel better about ourselves or worse about ourselves when we compare ourselves with other Christians. And that's one of the first steps towards failure. It's when we look at others and we boast in our own power rather than just staying humble in our weakness and keeping our eyes upon Christ. Secondly, the second part of Peter's failure is that he, notice on the screen, he argued with the Lord instead of submitting to him, Mark 14, 31. Remember at the Last Supper, Jesus responded to Peter's boasting and said, actually, Peter, you're gonna deny me three times tonight. And Peter argues and says emphatically, no, even if all... uh, I will never die, even if I have to die. Uh, Mark says that he said that emphatically. The word for emphatically uh, means excessive, meaning over the top. It was over the top for Peter to say that. Peter thinks that he knows himself better than Jesus knows him. So he argues with him. How often do we do that? How often do we think we know better than the Lord? Lord, I don't think you understand who I am. You're underestimating me, Lord, right? Rather than actually we're overestimating ourselves. And Peter takes the second step of failure by failing to acknowledge the word of the Lord in his life and to submit to the words of Jesus. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not willing to submit to the words of Jesus and his assessment of you, you're inching closer and closer to destruction. All right? it, it may be that you're here today and you're like, you know what, we're just gonna live together, unmarried, and it's fine. I, I, I don't really care what the Bible says. And you think God's just gonna overlook your sin, uh, even though he's crystal clear on immorality. Maybe that's you here today. Maybe you're here today and you think that, hey, uh, you know, I have this persistent, unrepentant sin in my life, but God gets it, and he understands I'm curbing it, I'm trying to do a little bit better with it. Instead of putting it to death and submitting to the word of God, you're trusting in your own assessment. Listen, repent, repent. Take God at his word. Listen to the scripture. Turn from your sin and receive refreshment from the Lord. Take heed lest you fall. Number three, uh, Peter was sleeping instead of praying. (laughs) We should just move beyond this one. We just skip this one. Uh, Peter could have been watchful in prayer, but instead he falls into sloth. I, I wonder how many times my prayer life looks like Peter's in the garden. Rather than praying like Jesus on my knees, uh, seeking the Father's will and submitting to suffering, I just uh, get sleepy. David Gusick, I love this. He says, um, Peter was ready to resist any attack except the attack of the Sandman. <laughs> Like, how does your prayer life look like? I did um, some research and found that they said the average pastor prays on average about three hours. Uh, I was like, okay, three hours, that's cool. Uh, and and uh, they said, yes, yeah, three hours a day. I was like, three hours a day the average pastor prays. You know, I'm joking right now. It's three minutes. Three minutes a day. I was like, no wonder the church is losing ground. If pastors are praying for three minutes a day, like, Lord, thank you for this incredible breakfast. Thank you for this incredible lunch. What an amazing dinner. Thank you, Lord. That's it. Three minutes a day. What an indictment on our church today. I, I, I wonder if we're sleeping, if we're resting, if we're relaxing rather than praying. And Peter's sleeping when he should have been vigilant in prayer. Ian Bounds, love this quote, says, what the church needs today is not more machinery. It's not new organizations or more novel methods but men and women whom the Holy Spirit can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. And many times we are sleeping instead of uh, praying, and we fail like Peter. Number four, we can do what Peter did, and we fight instead of trust. John 18.10. That was what we studied last week, where Peter pulls out the sword and begins to fight the battle in his own ability. He didn't pay attention to the gospel when Jesus communicated it on at least three occasions, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die, suffer, die, and I'll rise again on the third day. Peter had heard that at least three times and he wasn't, 
paying attention to it. He'd rather take matters into his own hands than trust Jesus to accomplish the work. Now, how many of us follow suit? We know we should sit when the Lord is telling us the battle belongs to me, but what do we do? We pull the sword out. All right, Lord, the battle belongs to me. Who, who, who do I fight? Let me go for it. And we attack. The Bible says it's mine to avenge, I will repay. We need to put the sword away and trust that God will fight for us. Otherwise, if we trust in our own strength and fight, we're going to fall. Well, there's one more mistake of Peter. This may be the worst, or maybe the one we're most susceptible to, and that's that Peter feared man instead of fearing God. He was warming himself with the same fire that Jesus' enemies were. He didn't want to stand out. He didn't want to look different. He didn't want to be associated with the followers of Jesus, even if it meant denying his Lord. And many of us are ashamed of the gospel, not because it's the power of God into salvation for all who believe, but because we fear what man will do to us. Well, I would witness, Lord, but I'm afraid of how people will react. I might lose a friend. I might get slapped. I might be rejected. But we fail to understand that the fear of man is a snare. It's a trap. It captures us and it keeps us. It eventually caught Peter and it brought him down. Peter allowed these mistakes to cause him to fall. But listen, in no way do I want you to leave today with me exhorting you to be a better Peter. What I'm not saying is, hey, Peter failed, so you need to be better than Peter. So come on, guys, let's get out there and let's just try better. Stop being a failure. You see, the gospel is not good advice. Do better, try harder. The gospel is good news. Amen? The gospel is good news. And so you and I in this narrative are not to be a better Peter. You and I are Peter. Okay? We fail. Can you just look to your neighbor and just say, you failed? Just tell them. They know what you're talking about. You failed. All right. Slow down, wives. Don't keep saying it. All right? Stop it now. (laughs) Don't go above and beyond on that one. Listen, listen. Look at the Testament. All of the gospel writers set a contrast in this text. They show the failure of Peter, and they show the faithful witness of Christ. Where Peter says, I don't know the man, Jesus says, yes, I am the son of man. Where where Peter says, I don't even want to admit, Jesus says, I'm willing to admit. I'm willing to take this. Uh, Jesus didn't fear man. He trusted his father. He was a faithful witness even when being bound, beaten, and bullied. He was willing to confront the enemy and not warm himself with the wicked. Jesus was praying while his disciples were sleeping. He was prepared for what lay ahead. And he was submitted to the father, living in complete dependence upon him, where Peter lived in complete dependence on his own strength. You and I are Peter. And we need Jesus, a true and faithful witness, to stand in our place on our behalf and to say, I'm willing to be cast out, to be condemned, to be nailed to a cross for you in your place. You and I, we need the finished work of Christ in our life. As Jesus fully relied on the Father, he stayed faithful even under trial. May we look to Jesus and his example in this narrative and learn to submit our lives to him. Amen? I want us to close our Bibles, and we're going to invite our worship team forward to close us in song. We're going a little bit over today, but though we look to Jesus as our example, we can look to Peter for a minute as a failure and actually be wildly encouraged. A couple things about mistakes I was intrigued by this week. Did you guys know that there was one baseball player in history who set two huge records? He set the major league record for the most strikeouts in a season. But they weren't strikeouts that he threw. They were him at bat striking out. He also set the record for the most consecutive strikeouts in a World Series game at five. He struck out five times in one game. You know who that was? That was the slugger we know as Babe Ruth. Did you know that the goat of basketball, Michael Jordan, actually missed more than 9,000 shots in his career? You could look at that and say, what a, what a failure, what a mistake. Steven Spielberg was rejected from the college of his choice three times. And I didn't know this, but Vincent Van Gogh only sold one painting in his entire life. What's my point? My point is what William Brown says. He says, failure is an event, never a person. You may have made an utter mess of your life as a Christ follower, but I want you to know there's hope 
Like Peter, you've failed yourself, you've failed others, you may have failed the Lord, but that failure doesn't have to define you. Your sin doesn't define you. Your mistakes don't define you. And often we fall into this pit of despond where we can't escape our sorrow over big mistakes that we've made. I know in ministry, I've made my share of mistakes. And there there have been times where I've been completely crippled and I've thought in my despair, I'm just paralyzed. And and rather than trusting God, I, I trust in my own strength and I fail to understand God is a God who restores. And today he wants to offer you that same hope. You see, John's story about Peter doesn't end here in tragic failure. There's a restoration that's today you can have that resurrection hope coming in the midst of death and despair. Today you can have that resurrection hope in Jesus alone. It's not about religion. It's about coming to an end of yourself. It's about a death. If you would die today, repent, turn from your sin, and trust Christ, the scripture says you can be made alive. You can have the wholeness, the fullness of knowing Jesus. You can be forgiven and free. Many of us are stuck in that place of sorrow, and I want to close with the words from A.B. Simpson. We'll just meditate on this as we close in song. He said, Art thou sunk in depths of sorrow where no arm can reach so low? There is one whose arms almighty reach beyond thy deepest, underneath thy deepest sorrow. The eternal is thy refuge. Let it still thy wild alarms. Underneath thy deepest sorrow are the everlasting arms. Underneath us, oh, how easy. We have not to mount on high, but to sink into his fullness and in trustful weakness lie. And we find our humbling failures save us from the strength that harms. We may fail, but underneath us are the everlasting arms. Isn't that awesome? Would you bow your heads with me? Are you here today and you failed? I want to pray for you. I know we're running out of time, but I just want to pray for you. Raise your hand and say, Pastor, I have failed in a variety of ways. I just need prayer. Raise your hand today. I want to pray for you. Father, thank you for those who have admitted that we are often a a people of failure, but failure is not a person. It's It's an event. And so, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us today by your grace. We thank you that we can approach your throne by faith. And so as we sing today, Lord, as we close, let us approach your throne of grace with confidence by faith. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.